0: but not broken with host Patrick Scroggins. As a U.S. Army attack helicopter pilot deployed in Iraq, Patrick faced a devastating crash, which resulted in him dying, losing a leg, and a slew of broken bones. Patrick's story of rehabilitation has helped others to overcome their own obstacles. Each week, Patrick recounts stories of inspiration and interviews guests who have overcome remarkable obstacles. This is Wounded but Not Broken with your host, Patrick Scroggins.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Moody But Not Broken on yet another Monday night. I know everybody had a great weekend. Uh, tonight we have a very uh, distinguished guest on, a very highly decorated uh, service member on. But before we get to him and before I introduce him, we had a, a tragedy in the VBN uh, family. And i would just like to ask everybody to keep uh the eli family in their prayers going through a tough time right now and uh they could use the prayers and you know uh, i know us in the in the family here we're going to be standing beside them and doing whatever they need to do but uh, if everybody would just please keep the eli family in your prayers so on tonight's show we got james furlong sergeant james furlong and uh I don't want to take away from his story, but he's a very highly decorated, very courageous soldier um, from the Vietnam era. And uh, so, Mr. Furlong? Hi, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you?
2: Doing just great. Uh, by the way, one of the things I'm most proud of in my life is that despite some successes and things that I've accomplished, I'm still just Jim. <laughs> okay. All right.
1: Jim, so jim so i understand uh in, in vietnam where you were in the second second battalion twenty fifth infantry division right so you were you were drafted i think you told me correct that is correct
2: i was drafted i was with uh, bravo company second battalion fourteenth infantry division twenty fifth or fourteenth infantry regiment twenty fifth
1: infantry division traffic light okay. Gotcha. i was there once in my career okay. but, uh
0: so you um when you
1: got drafted, you went in. Uh, you went to basic training, I'm assuming, and you became. What was your job in the military?
2: Yeah, I I was drafted in June of 1967, and uh, went to uh, First Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, for basic training, and then infantry training mm-hmm. at uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. And at that point, I was kind of singled out to go to another school. Uh, we were losing. Uh, NCO type of cadre very quickly in Vietnam, so I was sent to a camp, and I was promoted and eventually, when I completed the course, I was promoted to sergeant, uh, so I went over as a squad leader.
1: Okay, so you kind of fast-tracked from the beginning then? Yes, I did, yeah.
2: I mean, okay. they waived all, of, all the rules of uh, how long you had to be a, a private, and a, what do you call it, to, to get people trained and get them
1: out uh, to help in Vietnam. Right, yeah, because I'm assuming at that point, I mean, you know, the casualties were pretty high. I mean, um,
2: yeah, 68 was the worst year, and that's the year I went over there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was my next question. So what year did you get to Vietnam? Yeah, so I, got, 19- I got
2: there in May of 68 after Tet, but we were still mopping up at times. Uh, there were times that we were in Cholong, which is the Chinese section of Saigon, <laughs> uh, and you know, we were mopping up there, and then we were, we were really our area of operation was from the Cambodian border uh, to Saigon, and then kind of north of Saigon. But you know, the thing about the Canadian border there is an area called the uh, Parrot's Peak, and the Parrot's Peak gets to be, with, be within about 40 to 45 miles from Saigon. So this was prime territory for the Ho Chi Minh Trail. You know, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese would come down, uh, and when they crossed over the Cambodian border into South Vietnam, they were only 40 miles or so from Saigon.
1: Gotcha. So uh, how old were you when you got to Vietnam?
2: Uh, I turned 21 in Vietnam, and my 21st birthday, there's a picture of me walking, uh, cro- uh, walking with my rifle in the air, uh, crossing a, a fairly deep stream.
1: It was about up to my armpits. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, being drafted, I mean, you know, it's one thing to find your name on the dotted line because you're volunteering, but being drafted, um, you know, how, how did that affect you? How was your attitude, uh, you know, going over there? My attitude was
2: very good. I mean, there was never any consideration to be a draft dodger or anything like that. My father was a World War II vet. I was very proud of him. Um uh, and, and so, you know, my attitude was very really good going in. Uh, and, you know, there there might have been if I hadn't gotten hurt because, you know, medically I wasn't able to serve anymore. If I hadn't have gotten hurt, uh,
1: they probably would have – I, I might have stayed in. Gotcha. Yeah, we'll get to all that in a minute. But so, I, yeah, I'm, I was just curious because, you know, you hear stories about, you know, guys get drafted and they go over there and they got bad attitudes. And, I mean – to me, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you're there, so you, you know, I, I mean, I, I can, I can say one thing that I'm just trying to paint a picture for, you know, there's so many people in this country nowadays, especially that just take everything for granted, you know, stuff's not good enough or, or they want to gripe and bitch and whine about certain things that really in the grand scheme of things just aren't that big of a deal. And so that's why these stories are so important to me. I like, I like these stories to get told because hopefully, you know, uh, someone younger is listening and they're like, dang, you know, I, I don't have it so bad. And, yeah. um, uh, you know, I, there's so much that can be learned from our service members, especially the ones that have fought in war, um, our younger generation, I think, um, you know, can learn a lot and benefit a lot from it. So that's why that's, that's my big motivation in these stories. And so, yeah, if you want to just start in, uh, in the, your Vietnam, your experience, you know, at first, what you thought, how you felt and, uh, and, you know, and, and even how, when you came home, you know, just go through the the whole thing if you want to.
2: Sure. Sure. Uh, I actually left the United States through Fort Lewis, <laughs> Washington and McCord air force Base in Tacoma, uh, and my first impression of Vietnam was, darn it's hot. And when they opened up that airplane door, it was like a blast furnace. And yet it was nighttime uh, because we could see. We landed at Cameron Bay, and we can see firefights going on in the foothills surrounding Cameron Bay. Uh, they were like almost like evacuating the airplane. It was like get off, get off, get off. And we got off, and before we got to the building where we were going to process. Uh, that, that big old DC eight turned around and done the engines and took off down the runway. They didn't stay on the ground any longer than they had to. Uh, and, and a funny thing, you know, you get 30 days of leave before you go to Vietnam. And, uh, so I had my, because I was at Fort Benning, I was able to have my personal vehicle down there. So I, my car was a 66 GTO. I was a hot rider when I was a kid. Anyway, I, uh, uh, I drove three other guys home, uh, so there were four people in the car. There were four Purple Hearts in my car. There were two Distinguished Service Crosses in my car. There were two Killed in Action in my car, and there was a Silver Star and a Bronze Star for Valor in my car. That was quite a car uh, and everything. I drove one home to Baton, Illinois, and I'm going to mention his name. Maybe he's got family that's going to hear this and, and feel good about it. Uh, his name was... Uh, at, Alan Simpson, okay, and, and he was from Mattoon, Illinois. The other guy was, uh, I'm sorry, it was Alan Guy, Michael Simpson, Robert Schwingendorf, who ended up coming back to the United States with, you know, thankfully, like me, only not missing a leg or anything like that, but he came back to the United States and became principal at Hammond High School here in Indiana. So, uh, so, so Bob and I, we touch base every once in a while, but, you know, Mike Simpson and I ended up going to the same battalion, the 2nd Battalion, 14th Infantry Regiment. We walked into the company headquarters together, the regimental headquarters together. The top sergeant greeted us, took our personal documents. He looked at Mike and said, you know, if you're going to Delta Company. And he looked at me and he said, you're going to Bravo Company, 2nd of the 14th. <clears throat> and that was a whisker away from being in the same situation that Mike Simpson was in, that, that's and he died. He's the other Distinguished Service Cross that was in my car. So, uh, so that was a little bit of fate intervening right at that point. And I, you know, I was going to also mention to you when it came to my squad, the people I led, and my company, as a matter of fact, for the most part. Yeah, there were a few people that had bad attitudes. But for the most part, when you were out on patrol, there was an unwritten rule. Somebody had your six and I had somebody else's six. We always covered each other's backs. We put our game faces on, we put our grikes away, and we did our job out there. Okay? Uh, So that was, you know, that was what we did. Same thing with race relations. I mean, you know, there were times where, you know, uh, some of the uh, African-Americans, stayed with their groups and some of the uh, Latinos stayed with their groups and the white guys stayed with their groups. But for the most part, when we were out in the field, we were one unit. We were a good functioning uh, unit. I was never worried that somebody wouldn't cover me if I needed to be covered. And I returned that favor. There were times I've crawled out under fire and dragged the guy who got, you know, our point man and dragged him back behind uh, the rice paddy dikes and, you know, got him attention, got him wounded. Uh, He was wounded and he got his medical attention that he needed. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, that's a very important point that, you know, when you're, when you're in a life or death situation, you have to be able to rely on that man or woman to your left or to the right. And that's just an unwritten rule. I mean, you don't have, you don't have time for all the bullshit. It's, it's down to business and everybody wants to go home. Everybody has the same end goal. Everybody wants to go home, you know? And so that's, that's a good 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 to point that out.
2: Yeah. You know, my uh, a lot of the guys I served with in my we have a platoon reunion every oh every two years, okay? And we get together near somebody's home. Uh and when I, when you walk in there, it's it's hard to describe the brotherhood you feel when these people are the people you trusted your life to. Okay? It's hard to relate to that for a lot of people that have never been in that situation. It's hard to relate. But when we walk into that reunion, we pick up talking like we just talked the day before.
1: You know, we know
2: everything about them and we know their families and their kids and, and things like that. We're, we're a tight unit still to this day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, there's not a friendship that's forged like one that's up to people that have been to combat together that have been in life or death situations together. It's, it's just, there's, you you can't understand it. I can't make you understand it. It's just their family. They're just extended family. They're your brothers or your sisters. And you could go 20 years without seeing them. And as soon as you see them, you, it's just like, you never, never went that 20 years. Yeah. It's something special. Um, and that's, and that's honestly, for me, that's what I miss the most is, is the, uh, the men and women that I uh, fought with. But, and then, yeah, so once you got into Vietnam and you got off that airplane, how quick uh, before they started throwing you on patrols?
2: Oh, uh, I went on patrol the first day I got in, in the
1: camp. <laughs> That's
2: always nice. <laughs> the first day I got to the 2nd Battalion For it. it took about 24 hours to process us at the, what they call the replacement squadron at Cameron Bay. And then we were put on some of the small, one of the smaller short takeoff and landing aircrafts. I forget what, what it was. Uh, it was C code, obviously, but uh, they flew us into uh, Coochee, which is where we were headquartered, our, our battalion, and and uh, we ended up, uh, you know, going out to our company that night. You know, I mean, when, when the sar- top sergeant looked at Mike Simpson and me and said, D company for you, B company for you, said, the next words out of his mouth were, Mike, you get on that truck, and Jim, you get on that truck. They're going out to your camp.
1: <laughs> so, so, can, do, you, do you remember the emotions that was going that you that you were feeling at that point?
2: Yeah, on the truck, I was a little scared because they were, uh, you know, we we you could see all the potholes where they had planted mines and everything like that uh, that had blown up other trucks. You know, and I know in Iraq and Afghanistan they had the IEDs. This was. A uh, uh, minor form of an ID, but it would certainly kill you if it hit the truck in the right direction. You know, <laughs> right. so yeah, we went out there, and you know, some of my other impressions. When we, I almost immediately went on patrol. Okay, uh, in fact, I was on patrol one of my first nights in Vietnam. I was in on patrol, and we we went out about I don't know five to ten kilometers at night. Uh, set up a, a fire support, and, it, and before I left, I would sit down with the executive officer, and we'd go over what we call pre-planned artillery fire, both for my uh, the site I was going to be at and along my uh, travel route. So if we got attacked or ambushed or something like that, we had artillery fire, and we can just say, you know, fire uh, for effect on uh, you know on position number four, something like that. So we get set up. And I had a good friend, Jim Hancock, uh, who was a gunner on my machine gun. So they get set up. I got my machine gun set up, and I'm in a tight little perimeter uh, and everything because the squad's only about 10 guys, and sometimes it wasn't even 10. So we're sitting out there, and Hancock comes crawling up to me, and he goes, hey, Sarge, he says, there's Charlie coming out. I says, well, how many? Because I have to call in a situation report, a sit rep. He says, "Oh, I, I think it's just like a platoon or something like that." You know, I said, oh, "Okay, you know, I mean, I, I can pop an ambush. I've got the guys." So, I call in my fit rep to my company, and I'm no sooner getting done with that, and, and it was only a few seconds. And my assistant gunner, Jerry Weir, comes up to me, and he goes, "You know, Sarge, he said it's at least a platoon, maybe even a company." I went, "Hmm, I've got the element of surprise. You know, I might make we might be able to successfully do this." especially with the pre-planned artillery fire. So here goes crawling back to the machine gun, and it's only about 10 feet away, 20 feet away, but you can't yell it, you know, because you're in an ambush situation. So anyway, the next guy that shows up is uh, Philip Rivers. Philip? oh, that's the football player, <laughs> Bob Rivers. Sorry about that. Uh, Bob Rivers comes up, and, and Bob is a, a hardened 10, 11 months in country Uh And he's got sweat pouring down his face, and he goes, Sarge, he said, it's at least a battalion, possibly a regiment. And he says, I suggest we get out of here. (laughs) He didn't take much convincing. At that point, I knew that even the ultimate surprise wasn't, you know, going to be. So we got up, and I started calling in the pre-planned artillery fire. Uh, Somebody went out there the next day on a routine patrol and and found evidence of blood, but the bodies had all been cleaned up uh, by that time. And I hope... That's not too gross for somebody, but, uh, that's the way
1: it was in war. No. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's the thing This uh, people listen to this show, you know, it's accounting stories of war. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, they, that paints a very, um, disturbing picture, but you know, I, I'm very adamant on the stories need to be told. Um, I think people need to understand what our men and women go through when they leave this country to go fight for our interests, you know? Um, I do, but with, uh, but with that. With that being said, we're going to break here. A uh, word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back, and we'll pick up where we left off. All right, you got it.
0: Put your weapon next to weapon next You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors.
2: my My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Look at family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world
1: in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers
0: get good loads for them. The equipment is very new, and then it's very reliable.
3: At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667.
4: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
3: Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC.
0: Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggen.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Here with Jim Furlong. Uh, Mr. Furlong, you just told that story uh, about calling preplanned artillery, and, you know, the next day a patrol went out and found some blood and all that. Was that your first engagement in Vietnam, or had you been in, in engagement sure prior to that? Yeah, it, it, pretty okay. sure it was. Okay. And then so He's from there. you the
2: patrol, and you'd hear a quick snap and you didn't know it was one of your guys or somebody else, and maybe you'd fire into a tree line or something. But, uh, but you know, not to mind. You know, we hardly ever saw our enemy in Vietnam. Hardly ever. In fact, uh, probably the first time I saw him was when he, when he threw the hand grenade that cost me my leg.
1: Yeah, you want to go ahead and uh, you want to talk about that?
2: Okay. Uh, we came back from a routine patrol one day, and this was uh, – January 2nd, 1969. I got hurt on January 3rd, 1969. And, uh, you know, I'm closing my eyes here right now, trying to remember, because to me, it's still vivid in my mind. Okay. Everything that occurred that day from the moment I woke up to the moment I went, you know, I got put out in the, uh, in the emergency room. And so I, uh, I I was told when I came back from a routine patrol to go report to the CP, the command post. Uh, So I walked over there. It was unusual for me to go to a meeting of the command post because that was usually the duty of my platoon sergeant uh, and and our company commander. And we were planning the next day's events. Uh, If a whole company or a whole battalion was moving that, you know, we all worked that out at the command post. So, I got there and I was told that my platoon was going to be the uh kind of like patrol, you know, keeping an eye on the uh company commander and his his people. Now you got to remember there's a company commander, a forward artillery observer who's an officer, a forward artillery observer's radio, a company radio, a battalion radio, uh and a and a, a company medic uh that travels in the command unit, okay? So they right. get on the chopper first, and then oh, i I got to go back and say I was told we were going to go on an Eagle flight. Now, let me explain what an Eagle flight is. An Eagle flight, you usually have 10 landing zones you want to go to, uh, but hardly do we ever get to 10. But anyway, uh, you would go into a land, the first landing zone, for instance. You would get off. The choppers would take off. They weren't going to sit there and be sitting ducks. They would take off make a big circle in the sky, uh, and we'd sweep out to a hedgerow or something like that. And then if we didn't make contact, you know, the company radio would start chattering and all the platoons were reporting in, no contact, no contact. We would go back to the LZ that we just got let off on. The choppers would come back in, pick us up, and we dead reckon to another uh, LZ. So it's kind of like looking for a fight. Uh, you, You get that? Patrick it's yeah it's absolutely kind of like walking through a minefield uh, trying to trying to step on every inch of the dirt you know yeah about four LZ that day we're coming in and I you know we're in a chopper and as the squad leader I always sat with my feet out the door uh, which was kind of neat because being a pilot I know that you know that centrifugal force you know sometimes they make that big steep turn I'd be looking straight down at the ground and yet I'm still safely in the airplane because of centrifugal force so. Anyway, we're coming into the third LZ, and all of a sudden, my feet are out the door on the skids, and all of a sudden, the machine gunner next to me, the door gunner, whips the machine gun around and starts firing into a hedgerow. Lots of noise at that point with the gun and the stuff like that, but the the gunner looks over at me, and uh, he he said hot, but I never heard it, but I could read his lips, and I knew it wasn't good. You know, in fact, I could see some of the fire coming out of the a hedgerow that we were landing towards. So, so we land, but again, the company, the command choppers in front of us. I'm right behind them, and then there's a whole bunch of other choppers behind us. And I see the company commander take off for a hedgerow, okay? He goes over a rice paddy dike. And, of course, the usual chaos breaks out when you're in a firefight. I'm, I'm supposed to be with them. I'm getting my guys as quick as I can assembled, and we start to go, and there's choppers. They would only hover a few feet off the ground. Uh, I don't know whether it's ground effect or what, but they would only hover a few feet off the ground. So I had to let wait for one chopper to go by before I could catch up with the company commander. As soon as I went up on that rice paddy deck, I looked down, and the company commander is is down. I could you know, and there's three radios around them. There's uh, a, the medic, and then there's the uh, uh, forward artillery observer and everything like that. So there's six guys standing around a guy. He's got antennas. It's got to be obvious to the enemy he's a command-level officer. So I immediately have got to try and secure the area, and I grab a guy by the name of Junior Hudson by the collar, and I'm physically moving Junior. who was no, That was no small feat. Junior was a big, solid guy who used to box professionally. I'm pushing Junior to where I want him to go to protect the, the company commander and, and, the, and the other people. All of a sudden I get about five feet from the hedgerow, and Charlie steps out, and he's got a hand grenade. And it's like he's doing an underhanded toss because he wants to get the guys behind me. He doesn't want me. I'm I'm nothing. He wants the guys behind me. Okay? So I jumped mm-hmm. up as high as I could, and I wish I'd been six feet tall because I was only five eleven and a half. 11 uh, The grenade hit my fingertips. I was going to make him eat it. Uh, it hit my fingertips, fell at my feet. And it's reflex. You just, you don't really get a chance. It's all training. It's all reflex. I just reached over and put my foot on top of it. And the explosion went off, knocked me on my back. I remember looking up and seeing a bone sticking out where my foot used to be. And I, and by that time, the first guy to me was my platoon Sergeant, Sergeant Benny Marin. Benny gets over there first. Texted I'm okay because I'm indicating to him he's still there. Charlie's still there, you know? And he goes over and quite honestly, I heard some uh an M sixteen fire off and uh then he came back and said it's okay. By that time the medics had gotten there, uh, and uh they were talking to me. They wanted me to uh stay conscious because they were afraid I would go into shock, okay? And right. I did stay conscious. I was conscious until they put me out about an hour and a half later to do the surgery, which is another story, by the way, that I'll get to in a second. So anyway, uh, I'm in pain. I mean, it hurts. I, You know, I've talked a lot to schools and, and groups and people like that, and a lot of people have asked me why I didn't bleed out, and I've often wondered that myself. And what happened was is the heat of the explosion cauterized my veins. Okay, if you can imagine that. That's 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 how hot it is in that second, that that thing goes off. So anyway, they get me on a ch- oh, and, and then because my company commander is hurt, and one other guy got hurt, in fact, that's the guy who died, Glenn McAdoo, he was one of the radio men around the company commander. We get the, the battalion commander circling around overhead in his command chopper and he comes down to pick up the wounded. So we didn't even have to wait for medevac. We we you know, he came down, got off his chopper, they loaded me, uh uh Captain <laughs> I know the name, something you know, you get a little older you start names aren't on the tip of your tongue anymore. And McAdoo. And I remember the feed the medics stayed with us because they were trying to keep McAdoo alive. I could tell that he was the most seriously wounded wounded guy. So the helicopter pilot, who's used to driving a lieutenant colonel around, turns around and sees three wounded guys, one guy with a bone sticking out where his leg should be, and he reaches over and he throws up out, out over to the edge of the helicopter. Uh, but he had us at the hospital within 20 minutes after getting hurt. You know, it was about 1.20 in the afternoon, uh, and I was in the hospital. Now, I told you it took an hour for me to get into surgery. So I'm waiting, and they've got a... Uh, on my leg, and, and every once in a while it was loosened. They let some of the circulation go and then retighten. And the battalion surgeon heard what had happened, and he was already in uh, in the emergency room at the 25th of hospital, or 12th of hospital in Coochee. Uh And so I said, well, what's taking so long? You know, I've been triaged, and now I'm just sitting there. They cut my clothes off, by the way. I'm no longer as modest as I used to be. Uh, because I'm sitting there, they got a they got like a piece of paper over, but they got the fans going like mad, trying to keep the place cold, you know, or cool. Right. Yeah. So that, uh, he said there was an explosion in the Coochie Mess Hall today. Uh, it's detailed in a book called The Tunnels of Coochie. And what happens is, in a mess hall, you know, they try and tell you about separation. We practice social distancing in Vietnam before anyone else in the United States did. Okay. We would be out of patrol, and you weren't supposed to bunch up, okay? In case there's an ambush, then 20 20 guys don't get killed by one spray of machine gun bullets. So he said, yeah, there was an explosion at the mess hall, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Well, apparently, Coochie was built over a tunnel complex. And Charlie got into the mess hall one night, and they have these metal trays that we used to get our food served in, and they're stacked on this, uh, this tray holder, I guess you'd call it, and it's spring loaded. So the trays are always about waist high if you come to pick them up. So it starts going up this, as the springs are releasing, uh, and it's going up, it's going up. And then one guy takes the tray off, and that was the tray that popped the grenade that he had plant- that Charlie had planted underneath the tray holder. And, of course, in the chow line, you're not thinking you're going to get hurt and so everybody was was uh, for want of a better term, butt the butt at that time. Uh, and about thirty guys got hurt, uh, and all, and they some, and that meant to me that some of them were in worse shape than I was, you know. So the grenade went off, and the metal trays provided a beautiful amount of shrapnel uh, for right. everybody. But in the book of Blue t it lists the date as January eighth, nineteen sixty nine. And I'm sure somebody misread the three for an eight. It was January 3rd. I'm very, very,
1: very positive of it. Huh. I'll have to check that book out. And so what we're going to do right now, Jim, is we're going to take another break and get a word from our sponsors, and we'll pick up right there
0: uh, where we left right. off with you going into surgery. You got it. So put your next month. So put your next month. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken. With host Patrick Scroggin, we will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Attention,
3: looking for semi drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847 847- 754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer.
4: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985 serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
3: VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nifb.org and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nifb.org, and click on VDAC. VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network, brings you Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible.
0: Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken. With host Patrick Scroggin.
1: All right, everybody, welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you'll have to go back and listen from the beginning to this uh, this amazing story. But Jen, so you the the mess hall was was attacked. Over 30 yeah. wounded guys, and so all these guys came to the same cash hospital. I'm assuming. Right.
2: And like I say, they triage, so not everyone. I didn't have 30 guys in front of me. There were some guys behind me from the mess hall, but the more serious, there were some people obviously more seriously wounded than I was.
1: Right. And so that comes in with the hour and a half before you went into surgery. Is that what you're saying?
2: That's correct. That that, that accounts for that time.
1: You know, the last thing I remember
2: was being in the ER finally, and I'm slipping a mask over me that would put me to sleep for surgery uh, and everything. And then I woke up the next day, and it was the rest of my life.
1: Yeah. And so I'm assuming So you lost your leg below the knee, correct?
2: That's correct. And it was traumatic. I mean, there was... There was no hope in my heart when I went into surgery that they were going to be able to save it. It was gone.
1: Yeah.
3: In fact, I I, recently
2: talked to to one of the vets at the reunion, and he said they threw my boot in the chopper just in case. I don't remember that, but I'm sure that uh, Vinnie York uh, was definitely telling me the truth when he
1: told me that happened. Yeah. So... I mean, this is kind of the same happened to me. I mean, mine was gone. I was cut off, you know, clean, just above my boot. Yeah. And so, I mean, I saw my calf sticking out of it. But so for you, um, you know, you wake up, you're missing your your leg below the knee. I mean, walk me through them emotions.
2: Uh, The object was to try and get me back to the United States as soon as possible.
1: And... So,
2: you know, I was I was only in the 12th of Act Hospital for two days before I was put on a flight into the Nhat Airport in Saigon, uh, where I also spent a night in, in the hotel. And, by the way, remember now, I told you I got hurt on January 3rd, 69. Uh The Rose Bowl had been played on January 1st, 1969, and it was Ohio State against uh, USC. And on January 5th, I watched a copy of, you know, the recorded copy of the Rose Bowl uh given by Coach Woody Hayes. He had come to the Vietnam to show uh, to all the troops and everything like that. So I was very, very pleased at that point that he thought so much about us that he did that. And so now I get on the tra- uh Big old C-141 with a red cross on its tail. Uh You know, the 141 is the one with the droopy wings and everything like that, but Yep. So we take off and we're in the air for a couple of hours, but we're told it's going to be several hours to, uh, we're be, I'm being moved to, uh, to Ruku islands, which is like, uh, where Iwo Jima and all those islands were. It's part of Japan. Uh, I'm sorry. It was like Okinawa. Uh, but anyway, we're on our way to a U.S. army hospital in, in, uh, Vietnam and, I'm, I'm sorry, outside of Vietnam. And the plane starts going down after only a couple hours. It starts lowering, and you can hear them pull back on the throttles and everything like that. And I'm thinking to myself, gee, that's kind of funny. Uh, you know, uh, I thought we were going to have a five-hour flight, and it's only two hours into it. And the nurse comes on and said, you know, we're going to buckle up and things like that, and we're we're, uh, we're making a landing in uh, Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines because – Lo and behold, there's a patient on board that's running, a, starting to run a fever, and they want to get him off the plane and into surgery as soon as possible. So imagine my surprise when we land, the door opens up at Clark Air Force Base, and they come in and they remove my litter from the from the uh, what do you call? It? I was the guy running the fever. They wanted to get in there and do some more debreeding. They figured that that's what the problem was. Okay, so uh, so I spent a couple days in the Ruku Islands. Now. My folks are back home, and they get the telegram. And the telegram says that, uh, you know, your son was wounded. They described the injuries, and, of course, it's very medical. You know, he received a traumatic amputation of left leg below the knee, and he also received uh, a traumatic amputation of the thumb before the first distal. And I thought to myself, uh, you know, so they think my thumb's gone when act- in actuality, I lost about an eighth of an inch of my thumb. You uh, know, you can see the stitches today where where they had been. I mean, uh, so anyway, I'm laying there, uh, and my parents are back in the Chicago area. They lived in Chicago, and they decide that they're going to call uh, call me in the in the, the Ruku Islands. So my dad gets down with the long distance operator. After a few minutes, you know, it isn't as easy as today calling long distance. Uh, so, <laughs> right. They get to the hospital, and, of course, they get the guy on duty, and they say they'd like to talk to James Furlong. So this guy's going through his records. Meanwhile, I'm back at Clark Air Force Base, right? You know, so this guy's starting to go through his records, and he goes, nope, don't have a Jim Furlong here. Now, you can imagine the color leaving my parents' face when they hear that, okay? So the next question, obviously, is was Jim Furlong ever there? Nope, Jim Furlong was never here, Okay. Because the telegram said he's going to this hospital, you know, in, in the, uh, the on the Japanese islands. So my parents think I'm dead. Now it's Sunday afternoon. My dad calls our congressman, who's got somebody on duty to handle constituent issues, uh, on a, even on a Sunday. Uh, so he hears my, the, the the emotion in my dad's voice, and he thinks this is important enough that he's going to call. Uh, the congressman, who immediately gets on the phone. By the way, our congressman at that time was Morgan Murphy. He was the chairman of the House Affairs Subcommittee for Southeast Asia. Okay. A guy you don't want angry at you if you're in the Pentagon. So he immediately mm-hmm. calls the duty officer at the, at the Pentagon and says, find James Furlong
1: immediately. Okay.
2: Now, it's don't forget time zone differences. It's middle of the night in the Philippines, and I'm laying there. And they roll in this contraption that had a phone on it, but it was a fairly big device, and they plug it into the wall, pick up the phone, and she says, here, your mom and dad are on the phone, talk to them. Uh, So they found me, all right, uh, probably in record time. So I'm talking to my dad, and I said, well, now I'm being told that I'm going to go right from here to Fitzsimmons Army Hospital in Denver uh, where I'm going to recuperate. And as an afterthought, I said to my dad, Gee, I, I, Great Lakes has a big naval hospital in Chicago area. Why can't I go to Great Lakes? So I'm thinking that out loud, and my dad and I pick up on that. And he goes, you know, the congressman gave me his number and said, if I had any problems, I'll give him a call. So the next day, my, my you know, or when he gets off the phone, my dad calls Morgan Murphy, and he says, Congressman, my son is being told he's being sent to Denver, and we're kind of curious why he can't go to Great Lakes. Morgan Murphy says to my dad, don't miss for long. I'm going to find out. And, if you know, so... He calls my dad back about 10 minutes later, and he says to my dad, you know, Fitzsimmons Army Hospital has a specialty of handling amputees, lower lower leg amputees. It's probably the best place for your son, but if you want your son at Great Lakes, that's where he'll go. So my dad calls me back, and we're talking about it, and he says, you know, if you want, you can come to Great Lakes, you know? And... But they explained to me about the amputees, okay? And I'm still still at Clark Air Force Base, by the way. And so we decided that I was going to stay with going to Denver, Colorado, okay? So Mm -hmm. I got to Denver, Colorado on Super Bowl III Sunday. And you may be too young to remember, but that was the day that Joe Namath uh, predicted that the Jets were going to beat the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III. And I thought to myself, even in an NFC city like Chicago, No way. So anyway, uh, I'm getting off the plane. I said, who won the Super Bowl? And one of the litter bearers said, the Colts, or the the Jets did. And I went, how did they beat the Colts? You know, with Johnny Unitas and and stuff like that. So that's how I remember the day I ended up at Fitzgerald's Army Hospital uh, was the day that the Colts won the Super Bowl. Well, I was there until late August, okay? Uh, Most of the time I was pretty healthy. Uh, and could come and go as I wanted because they were putting me through medical boards to medically discharge me for the Army. And you can imagine a medical board, how nice and comfortable and how long it takes to do everything. So I'm there eight months. I want to tell you something right now. My mother was deathly afraid of flying, okay, and yet for every weekend for eight months, my mother got an appointment. Despite all her fears, to come see her son. So, they made
3: about thirty-four trips
2: to Fitzgibbon's Army Hospital in Denver. So, I liked Denver so much when I was there. As I started to get better, like I think I told you, they started to put me with a prosthesis and. So I'm able to move around. I bought a car while I was out there. Uh, And, you know, we just started moving around and looking at Denver. And when I say we, there were other guys in the hospital that would go with me. And we'd drive around. And and, uh, besides looking for good-looking young women, (laughs) the, the town impressed me. So when I got back, the VA told me that I could go to any, you know, I wasn't eligible. I was eligible for the GI Bill, but they had something better called vocational rehab. And now they're going to send me to up to a master's degree uh, to go to school. So I start looking around for schools, and I thought, you know, gee, that Denver was kind of a nice town. So I applied to the University of Denver, and lo and behold, they had alumni here in the Chicago area uh, who started calling me up and telling me what a great school D was. You know, I was a Blackhawks fan. At the time, we had Keith Magnuson and Cliff Coral from the University of Denver playing for us. And uh, so I applied and got accepted, and I went back and spent three and a half years, roughly, at the University of Denver, uh, where I eventually received my master's degree in economics. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Then, I like Denver so much, you know, they come and have a... Uh, uh what do they call them at the university Uh, a session where different companies can come in and interview prospective graduates so I'm interviewing with the United States General Accounting Office uh that's what they were called then today they're the Government Accountability Office and I really like what I'm hearing there's going to be I'm young I'm single and I hear there's travel all over the Rocky Mountain region from from border to border from Montana down to New Mexico So I thought, this sounds like a pretty good deal, okay? And so I signed up for GAO, and we were constantly getting uh, jobs like at Cheyenne Mountain, uh, which is NORAD, uh, which is a highly classified area, and then down at the uh, Department of Energy Labs in New Mexico, like Los Alamos and Sandia. Uh, And so I get a top-secret clearance with... The ticker SCI, special compartmentalized information, which is the highest basically about the highest classification you can get. So anyway, about five years later I decided to get now, three years later, I decided to get married. I meet this gal, and now I don't want to travel so much. So I start looking in the paper and there's this computer company that would like to hire me. And they went nuts when they heard I had a uh, security clearance, okay? Because that's something they would do to people that would work in this area. So I go to work uh, with my security clearances. Every six months, I've got to have a lie detector test to make sure I'm not siphoning money out into my. And they got to look at my checking account all the time, too. Uh, but it was part of the requirement to keep the clearance. And I needed the clearance, I wanted a job. And so I ended up, you know. Uh, Getting a job was uh, at the time was called Digital Equipment Corporation uh at the time they were the second largest computer company in the world uh but they kind of thought there was no future in uh, uh personal computers, which was not the best policy to have back in the uh eighties so no. anyway uh I, I've got that job, and then they put me as a sales manager in charge of groups that were selling uh into the government. Uh, from all over. So in other words, I had a four-state territory, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, and Oklahoma. Uh, And some of my people didn't have the clearance that I had. So if there would be a project that I needed to work on uh, at Johnson Space Center, for instance, that was classified, okay, then I would be briefed into the program, go do my work, make my sale pitch, you know, can do a best, a uh, best offer, a bid uh, on a particular project. Uh, and then I would get debriefed out of it afterwards, you know, where, in other words, what did you learn? And I would tell them and they would go, okay, you don't talk about that. You don't talk about that. So like our right. company subcontracted with Sandia labs in Albuquerque to, uh, to outfit the 747, because back then they were still using the old 707. Uh, as Air Force One and the 747 was parked at uh, uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, which is a joint uh, facility with the uh, municipal uh, municipality of Albuquerque. And every time I fly into Albuquerque, I would see the 747 sitting there. Uh, and uh, you know, we were we were subcontracting with them to uh, do the network on the 747. Now that was highly classified at the time. I'm sure that the network on the Air Force One's been. Uh, Upgraded many, many times since then. Since that was the '80s,
1: uh, somewhere in the mid to late '80s. Yeah, I'm sure it's pretty extremely really high tech now. But uh, hey, Jim, we're going to take another break here. Word from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll pick up where we left off.
0: You
3: got
1: it.
0: Put your weapon next to mine. Put your weapon next to mine. You're listening to Wounded but Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey!
2: My father was the best truck driver I've ever known in my life, like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is
0: very new and then it's very reliable.
3: At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847 754 That number again, 847-754-4667.
4: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
3: Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC.
0: Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin.
1: Everybody, welcome back. Uh, I just quickly want to say this. I don't know if Jim's going to mention it because as most soldiers are, uh, pretty humble, but uh, in his actions that he talked about in Vietnam, he received the Distinguished Service Cross. And for you that don't know what the Distinguished Service Cross is, it's our nation's second highest award. And you only get—I mean, you get that for—I mean, you know, you got to—you got to put your life uh, ahead of somebody else's, basically. And I mean, you—you you, you know, it's there's there are certain stipulations, but it's a very high award, very prestigious award. And I don't know, Jim, if you were going to mention it, but uh, I just. I just think it's important for people to understand that, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't do what we do for awards by any means, but, uh, you know, it, it it is nice to get, you know, that you were able to get that because you deserved it. You know,
2: my good friend, Doug Sterner, if he's on, he he says the same thing about me. I mean, I'm, I I don't see it. Uh, you know, I, I think I told you earlier that, you know, i like to talk in front of groups. Uh, whether they be veterans or schools or just the public in general sometimes. Uh, and I'm asked about it, but I try to focus on those guys who didn't come back, like Glenn McAdoo, the guy who died the day I got hurt, okay? Glenn didn't come back. He'll always be 21 years old in my mind uh, and everything. So, uh, so you know, I'm, I you know, I try to get out to see his grave when I go out. To visit. My son lives in Los Angeles. Uh, and everything, and uh, you know, we can't we can't forget those people. Uh, Absolutely not. I'll tell you a story about the Vietnam Wall if you got a second. Sure. Uh, uh, I used to sure. Have, on my job with Digital, the, the computer company. I used to go into Washington quite a bit because I was the government, you know, with the government unit. And I would get to Washington, and I would go to see the wall at night. Okay. It's very safe. You walk in from the West End, like at the Lincoln Memorial. You're maybe 50 feet from your, where you park your car, maybe 100. You walk down the gash, and it's quiet. It's reverential. It's almost like being in church. And if you see somebody in there, you know it's a vet. And you kind of give the nod, the acknowledgement, uh, and things like that. And the wall is backlit from the, from the ground up. And so you can still get to the panels. You get to see the names of the names. I know about 30 names on that panel. And I would stop in front of many of them, and sometimes I would break down thinking about that person who's still 21 years old. And so now I go to Washington one time, and my son is a junior in high school, and he says, uh, you know, we go to the Vietnam Wall. And I promise myself that I'm not going to break down. But yet I still stopped in front of all the, you know, the names that I wanted to look at. And I would explain to Patrick how I knew them, whether I went to high school with them, whether I trained with him, or whether I served with them in Vietnam. So we get there, and we start down the west end. We go down, and, you know, it kind of like drops down, uh, you know, so at the top of the wall is ground level all the time, okay? And then we start going up the east end. So you go back up after you go down to the middle. Mm-hmm. And I'm about two panels from the end And I stop and I see a picture uh, of A Polaroid picture sitting there And I can tell it's two bets And all of a sudden this little boy comes up And with all the innocence that only an 8 or 10 year old boy can have He picks up the, the photo And kind of like says to me Do you know anyone whose name is on this wall? How oh, that got to me you know, I lost it in front of my son. I've been doing so good. And the father was kind of shocked. And I said, it's a child's curiosity. It doesn't bother me. Okay. It, 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 it doesn't, you know, uh, right. yes, I, do. I know, I know many names on this wall. Well,
1: that's pretty
2: powerful. Um, yeah. So, so now I'm working. And by the way, when I went to Fitzsimmons Army Hospital in Denver, when, when I was first checking into the hospital after the flight from uh, the Air Force Base, just outside of Sacramento, Travis Air Force Base, uh, I get to Fitzsimmons Army Hospital, and, of course, they're taking your vital signs out in the lobby, you know. And the major, who's going to be my, my surgeon, comes up to me, and he says, How are you doing? I goes, Ah, you know, I always wanted to come to Colorado because I wanted to speak. <clears throat> oh, we'll get you skiing. Don't worry about it. Okay, and sure, uh, sure enough, uh, in April when there's still snow on the on the mountain tops, they took us to a Basin. I promptly jumped on a without any training. I promptly jumped on a chairlift, uh, go up to the top of a basin, which is above the treeline in the Rocky Mountains. Okay and start skiing down, and I'm falling every 10 feet. It took me basically all day to get through. But I stayed with it, and I did learn how to ski. And then I thought to myself, you know, I want to give back to what people gave me, the people, the bouncers that came out and taught me how to ski, that stuck with me, okay, and taught me how to ski. So I decided I'm going to help the Handicapped Ski Program at Winter Park and I'm but I'm working so I can only come up on weekends. Well Sunday is the day they brought blind skiers up. So starting in the seventies, eighties and nineties, I'm teaching blind kids how to ski. Okay. And it That's was all. Me, they would they would give me the they would give me the problem people. But, you know. Uh I remember one time I had this gal who was sixteen and you know, I kinda heard her you know, she's blind, so she she doesn't know that my leg is wooden. And so she's kind of sniffling, feeling sorry for herself. I said, What's wrong, Patty? And she goes, You don't know what it's like to be handicapped. <laughs> I've got my ski pole right. <laughs> I slap the side of my leg about four times, and it makes a big, loud boom you know, this loud noise Crap, crack, crack like a baseball bat, hit, a baseball hitting a baseball bat. She said, yeah. What's that? I said, that's my ski pole hitting my artificial leg. I do know what it's like to be handicapped. Okay. Well, <laughs> that got her over the hump. Boy, we we talked to Trisha Husky. She was a good skier. Okay. And, uh, I'm real proud of all the people that I worked with. I, I worked with one guy who was diabetic, lost his sight because of diabetes. And before that he had been a an NCAA top skier. So he could ski really good, and following him was a challenge for me with uh, with my equipment. And then I once had a little five-year-old boy, and he'd fall down, and I'd just kind of ski up to him and reach over and run by, and his legs were all akimbo. I'd reach down, pick him up by the scruff of his uh, jacket, and uh, as he came up, the legs would straight out, and i just set him back down on the ski trail and we'd start off again, you know. So I really enjoyed that. that. That was the way... I started giving back to my community. Okay. And my late wife and I, we were volunteers at Edward hospital in Naperville. Uh, and, uh, we taught in the orthopedic ward and I was the only guy that was allowed to wear shorts. Everyone else had to wear tan, uh, slacks, you know, almost like a little uniform, but I could wear tan shorts. and my, of course, my leg is, is exposed. Okay. Now, I was going in there and working with people who had just had their knees replaced and their hips replaced, and I'm going to be their coach for exercises. And as I walk up to them, they look down, see the legs, look up, and go, I'm not going to get any sympathy from you, am I? And I go, no, you're not. You're not getting any sympathy. (laughs) And I work
1: them, you know, uh,
2: and everything like that. So, uh, you know, I wasn't mean, don't
1: get me wrong, but, you know. Well, no, but... But in that situation, there's nobody better to, uh, you know, you can relate to a lot of it. I mean, and they can relate to you. And so you're not going to feel sorry for him. And and to be honest with you, people that are hurt or are, are so-called disabled. I don't like that word. I, I think, I think I, I choose ability. I think it's everybody's ability. will overcome disability every time. If you have the ability and you have the desire to do something, no matter what it is, you can do it. And so, but, you can relate in a way that nobody else can and, and, and they can relate to you. So it's, it's much easier for you to teach them. So that's a, that's pretty, that's awesome that you did that. And I think, I think a lot of service members, you know, when they get out, they, they give back in, in their own way. And, and, uh, you know, that's, it's just a, it's just something you do. I mean, you just want to take care of, take care of the people. So I understand that you and you became an author, uh, and you've offered some, some things An office author. Author, you've written oh, an author.
2: Some... yes. Let me mention that. This is a good time to plug my good friend Doug Sterner, who I sent a note that I was going to be honest. Doug, I hope you're listening. Uh, yeah. Doug Sterner is the editor of a book series called Beyond Belief, which tells stories sometimes by the branches, sometimes of the, of the service branch. In other words, we've talked about Navy heroes uh, that served in the war, and then the next book we did, chaplains that did distinguish things, whether they were in the Navy uh the army or the air force okay so doug has a series of books called beyond belief it's on amazon folks if you like reading military books my suggestion is go out and buy one i contributed about a year and a half ago to well no a year ago because it was released on memorial day uh to a book called beyond belief true stories of naval heroes now my somebody sent me in fact i know who it was so i'm going to mention his name too My good friend, Fred Wingfield, who was a, uh, Marine, uh, veteran, sent me a little published story about a man, a black man who had swam an incredible amount of time, uh, in the water, uh, off bottom during a, during a war situation. I'm going to explain what happened. Uh, this gentleman's name was Charles Jackson French. Okay. He's a steward on board a troop ship. Uh, and, and you know, back in World War II, black people, beside the Jim Crow era, black people were only, even in the Navy, uh, allowed to serve as stewards or warehouse men for some menial task job. Uh, and I'm so glad we changed our attitude on that through the years. But anyway, French, the ship gets hit, and they're off Waddle Canal. Okay, the famous World War Two battle. And the ship is sinking, and there's an abandoned ship uh, call goes out. And French, he didn't jump in the water. He literally walked into the water off the deck of the ship that was sinking like that. And he sees a life raft, uh, and climbs into it, and it's filled with about 24 other survivors. But it's got holes in it, and the sailors are stripping off their clothes to plug the holes. uh, And it's supposed to have a motor, and the motor's all destroyed by the shrapnel from the sinking of the ship, you know, from the ship being hit. So it's drifting. It's no power, and it's drifting towards land, Japanese-held territory. And they get close enough where suddenly a a shore battery uh, of machine guns opens up on them. This man gets up drips off his clothes, ties a rope around his waist, jumps into shark-infested waters, and swims for over six and a half hours until they're rescued the next day by an American ship. He got a, for his effort, which I think was an extraordinary act of heroism, he was given a letter of commendation from a, a famous World War II admiral. And that was all. He died of alcoholism at 38 years old. Okay. But, well, that's uh, tragic. And right in my section, just to give you a little idea, I have a good friend, Dr. John Arnold, who does research for me uh, with a company called NICOM. Nikon. Nycom.com is their website. And John Arnold uh, can go into the to the uh, archives and s- search for specific things. He's very good uh, researcher, okay? So to do my story about the sinking of the boat and the sailor who made a hero, I rely on the after-action reports. John gets me the after-action reports. Uh, and so now I'm able to pinpoint, you're on that boat while it's sinking. And this seaman is here now, and this is what he was doing when the ship first started uh, getting shelled, and this is what he was doing as it, when the uh, abandoned ship uh, command comes over the, the loudspeaker system. So, uh, So I thought I did a pretty good job of detailing, you know, This seaman was here, this machinist mate was here, this guy was in the boiler room, and tell their story, you know,
1: of of what
2: they did when the ship was going down. So, uh, we do a lot of research. Uh, So, again, if you're inclined, uh, look on Amazon for Beyond Belief true stories of, let's say, naval heroes. Uh, We're doing right now, we're doing civilians who were uh, in the war. Uh, And one of my. Uh, subjects. There's a guy by the name of John Paul Van. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the book for you, so I'm just going to let you say it. it's a fascinating story of what he overcame. And he was uh, the commanding general as a civilian, okay, in 1972 during the Battle of Kontum. And so John Paul Van died the night of the victory when his helicopter crashed into a. Uh, A grove of trees Which just happened to be a local village uh, Cemetery So uh, Fascinating, but the story up to that point Is also very fascinating And then the other guy I'm doing is Mo Berg Mo Berg had been a catcher in the 20s And 30s for the uh, Major League Baseball, he was a catcher And when he retired in 1940 I think uh, Just before the war started uh, He ended up Becoming a spy later on in the war, and I'm going to tell you the story here in a second. So this is Mo Berg. He's a catcher, okay? Mo Berg, among the other assignments, he got a lot of tough assignments. He was also very smart. He was a he spoke twelve languages and had a degree in, in languages from Princeton University and got his law degree from Columbia. He goes into the OSS. And everyone in the United States knows that, you know, everyone in the command levels of the United States know we're developing a bomb. And they don't know how soon it'll be ready. And they're worried about the Germans developing the same bomb because a lot of our scientists are German, okay? So they know, we know they're working on a a bomb. So the head of the German uh, program, Walter Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg, is going to give a speech in Zurich, Switzerland, which is neutral Switzerland. Berg is sent there with a gun in his pocket and a cyanide capsule in his pocket and is told if you think the Germans are close to developing the bomb, assassinate the man. Okay? I won't tell you what happened. You'll have to read it yourself. <laughs> anyway,
1: uh, but I've well, really uh yeah hey i I have one question for you real quick about mr French is yeah. there no is there not a way to go back to have that reviewed and have him get the I often the
2: that. And i know you guys are, are advocates for veterans and and I think the man ought to be recognized okay uh clearly was, any vet that's seen the story real veterans know what heroism is He was a hero he yeah. saved
1: twenty
2: four lives that day. And he had the sharks nibbling at his toes.
1: Yeah, that's uh, – g- yeah, we – I would like to get with you offline here. I'll give you a call in the next couple of days, and, uh, yeah, let's see what we can do. I mean, uh, yeah. there's no reason why they can't go back and review that and give him what he deserves. I
2: mean, Biden awarded a Medal of Honor to uh, a 95-year-old soldier from World War II, uh, Paucus, uh was his name, right. Colonel right. And Yeah, uh, right. I mean – they can always go
1: back and review this.
2: So they went back and checked on him.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I, I, it's just a, it's an extraordinary story, and and I, I really want to read up on it even more now. I'm intrigued, and uh, yeah, I definitely I definitely want to see if we can yeah. help his family. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. he definitely well, deserves it, more I than I. Much
2: of his family. I don't think he had any children, and he was a he was an alcoholic till the end of his life. Well, you know, I'd be an alcoholic too. He was. They were parading them around for a while as a uh, bond salesman, but eventually they sent them, uh, they were going to put them on a ship uh, that was going to sail to uh, Okinawa and be part of that invasion, okay? And it's a troop transport, a lightly armed troop transport. Now, if I had been in a troop transport that had been sunk uh, in a battle and I was going to another battle on a troop transport,
1: I'd drink too. You know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good you know, point. But hospital, yeah,
2: I, I, I definitely were and hospitalized. They had to dry him out, you know?
1: Yeah. I definitely think he deserves a lot more than just a letter of accommodation and, uh, you know, for whoever, I mean, it just, it's the I, right 100%, thing to do. Uh, All right. Well, I'll give you a call. I'll give you a call offline here in the next couple of days and we'll get caught up on that and see what we can do. But, uh, that's all we have for tonight, Jim. I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, you are a hero uh, and and I know that you're humble and you're going to disagree with me, but you are, and I really appreciate the service you've given to this country uh, during Vietnam, after Vietnam, all the way up until now. I uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks for sharing your story.
2: Hey, Doug, I'd like to say one more thing before I hang up here. Uh, I'm a proud parent. My son Patrick is going to receive his doctorate uh on sunday mother's day so i'm going to fly to los angeles this weekend uh so matthew and maya my grandchildren if you're listening grandpa can't wait to see you okay
1: that's it Doug. awesome congratulations and we will talk to you uh in a couple of days i really appreciate you coming on and for everybody listening tonight for everybody okay. listening Oh, nothing. I'm just doing the closing for everybody listening tonight. I really appreciate you tuning in. I know this runs a little bit longer than what we usually do, but this is a great story and these stories need to be told and you just, I hopefully it will start to shed some light that uh, there's a common theme in my stories and my podcast that everybody comes on no matter how bad they were hurt, no matter what they went through, everybody always overcomes it and then they want to give back. And this story tonight is no different. And again. Uh, In closing, please keep the Eli family in your prayers. They need it from all of us. Uh, They're going through a hard time right now, and I hope I wish everybody, I hope everybody has a great week, and we'll talk to you next Monday night. God bless you.
2: One other note, Patrick. Uh, I am going to that
1: service on Thursday. I'm trying to, okay? Maybe I'll see you there. Yes, sir. All right, everybody, God bless you. God bless the United States of America. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank
0: you. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggins.
2: My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you're not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a
1: really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment
0: is very new, and then it's very reliable.
3: At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667.
4: Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com.
3: Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network, brings you Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible.